I was a pretty serious athlete for quite a few years. And looking back now, I realized that the thing that really limited my athletic career was recovery. It was something that I just never managed to master. And really, I spent a large part of my career sort of negating it and not giving it the attention that it really deserves. Looking back now, I can see that had I paid more attention to recovery, I may have performed better. That that may have actually been my limiting factor. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. As some of you might know from previous podcasts, I am also a runner. But with training for races and trying new distances comes something else. Sore muscles, minor injuries, and other irritating kinds of pain. When that happens, it's time for recovery. Sure, I could take a few days off, I guess. But I want to run. I want to be stronger. I want to be faster. I want to be better. So I mush my muscles with a foam roller, I add protein to my oatmeal, and maybe I should consider a cryo tank or compression leggings, or like, didn't Michael Phelps do that cupping thing? Do any of those treatments actually work? What is the science backing the latest fads in exercise recovery? To test it out for us, we've got Christy Ashwanden. She is the lead science writer at 538. She is also the writer of a new book, Good to Go what the athlete and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery. So you tried a lot of different things for this book. And I wanted to start with, I guess, a basic question. What is recovery? Like, what is that exactly? (laughs) Well, it's kind of great that you start with that. That's actually how I started when I first began researching this book. I thought, okay, well, the first thing I need to do is define recovery. What, What is recovery? And I found out that this is like a really hard question to answer. And you talk to 20 different researchers, and you'll get 20 different answers. And, you know, one of the fundamental problems here in trying to study this stuff is, you know, you you immediately run into this definition problem, like, what is recovery? And therefore, how do you measure it? If you can't even say what it is, how are you going to do a study that that tests whether something works? Like, if you are using a particular device or approach, how are you going to test whether it works? Are you talking about, like, how tired you feel, um, whether you're sore, things like that? Um, but I guess at its most basic level, recovery is really sort of a return to readiness. So it's like you exercise or you work out or you do a race, a hard event, um, you're tired, you're sore probably, and recovery is the process that happens between then and that time when you sort of feel um, all refreshed, no longer sore, no longer tired, but ready to go back at it. And recovery, I guess, in a way is as old as exercise. You know, people have been feeling sore and then feeling better for as long as we've been exercising. But I was especially struck in your book by how recent recovery is as an industry. What did people used to do for recovery And how has that changed? Oh, yeah, this is so different now. So I guess it was probably the, the, you know, early 2000s to like 2010, around that that time when I stopped competing seriously. And even back then, which wasn't that long ago, I don't don't necessarily want to do the math, but, um, you know, back then, recovery was really something that you weren't doing. It was, you know, you weren't going out and dancing all night. You weren't standing on your feet for long periods of time. It was really just resting up, sleeping, putting your feet up. Um, It was all these things that you weren't doing. But now, uh, recovery has really become this whole enterprise in and of itself, where it's almost 
another part of training where there are all these things that you're doing. You have people that are foam rolling. But now recovery has really become a thing that people do. It's become a verb. It's no longer a noun. And so people go out and they use foam rollers. They jump in ice baths. And I'll just say ice baths are one thing that are very old. And back in, back in my day, we, we use those as well. But there are so many more devices and modalities now that people are using. And it's really become something that people in many cases will spend as much time doing as they did as as they spent on the workout itself. I was really struck by that and by kind of, I guess I want to call it the role of culture in the Mm. rise of the recovery industry. You noted several times in the book that we're all very into, you know, go hard or go home. And we kind of lionize the people who perform in spite of pain and injury. I distinctly remember a gymnast, I can't unfortunately remember her name, but she actually performed a gold medal pommel horse jump on a broken ankle right and it was like the greatest thing that ever happened and we 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 lionize those people do you think that that contributed to the rise of recovery as an industry what role does culture play in this new emphasis on how we recover oh yeah there's no doubt about it culture is a huge factor here and it's really one of the things that's driving it and I, i think you're right we have this culture of go hard or go home and so the idea is you're not just working out hard but you're recovering hard too you know and you can't just you know if you're relaxing you might be missing something and there's really this huge culture too that i found of this fear of missing out you know we often talk about fomo in terms of people worrying about missing out on social media but now you have this this thing where people are worried that you know their competitor might be taking something or doing some recovery modality that they aren't and somehow getting a leg up. And so there's kind of this underlying anxiety that you know you have to always be doing enough and making sure you're optimizing every single bit just perfectly. I've decided I'm now going to rename my foam roller my FOMO roller. <laughs> I love because it. I love it's it. just perfect. But now <laughs> I want to get to the fun part which is all the weird things you tried for science. Yeah. (laughs) I particularly wanted to start with cryotherapy because this one gave me goosebumps in a bad way. Can you talk about what cryotherapy is? Yeah, so basically what you do is you get into this um, big steel tank um, that's really, I guess, body size. So just your head is sticking out of it and uh, you're naked in there. So you go in. So I, I went into this thing with a robe and the guy says, okay, hand me your robe. And so I'm, it felt very, very vulnerable. You know, I'm standing naked in this tank and he turns on, flips the switch and this liquid nitrogen sort of comes out. And so it's very, very cold. And you're only in there for, I think I was in it for two and a half minutes, which is pretty standard. And it basically feels like standing naked in a snowstorm. And so it's very, very cold. And I have to say it was a huge adrenaline rush. And so then, you know, the, the gas went off, um, returned back to, to room temperature, put the robe back on. And, you know, my muscles and my body were pretty cold for a short while. But but the thing that I noticed most about it was just this intense sort of psychological rush that I got from it. It reminded me a lot of times when I've been in a sauna and jumped out in the snow or taken a cold plunge afterwards. It's that big contrast and just kind of get a rush of adrenaline from it. It's an expensive rush of adrenaline. I think those chambers cost a lot, right? Oh, yeah, they do. Um, I don't know the exact purchase price, but but they're very spendy. And you know, just to do a session of this can cost 50 to to $100, depending on where you're going. Now, 
how is this supposed to work? It's this ultra chill of liquid nitrogen for a very short period of time. I think it's below 100 degrees Celsius. It's really cold. How is that supposed to help? So the idea is that it gets, you know, your skin very cold. And so your body shunts all the blood to your core, and that this is going to reduce inflammation. I mean, there are all sorts of bogus claims made for it. I had one guy tell me that it was going to super oxygenate your blood, which is just sort of physiologically impossible. But basically, what it does is it makes you cold. So your body uh, does shunt its blood sort of to the core and then you get out and you get warm again and your circulation increases a little bit. So you're basically sort of reducing circulation to the extremities for a short while and then you're letting it open up again. And do we have any evidence that it works? Is there any evidence it could super <laughs> oxygenate your blood? <laughs> there's absolutely no evidence for that. Um, there's evidence that it makes you cold. There's evidence that some people like it. Um, you know, there is a little bit of evidence when they give it to people and they ask them how they feel. You know, they report all kinds of great things. But in terms of any um, quantitative reproducible data, no, it doesn't It doesn't seem like it. it's a pretty nice placebo, I would say. Well, and it sounds kind of, I don't know, exciting, I guess. Um, and you also tried things that were a lot, I, I suppose, in another way, though it's equally exciting to me. You tried something less exciting. You tried sensory deprivation tanks. I did. I did. And I <laughs> which sound I horrible. I agree. I agree. I was really dreading this because I'm a little bit claustrophobic. I do not like to be underwater. And so in the sensory deprivation tank, you're basically in, it's only a few inches, but this very salty water. And so you you float. And I just thought, I'm going to hate this. It's going to be dark and quiet. I'm going to be alone with my own thoughts. And it sounded terrible, but I fell in love with this. This was probably the number one trick that I tried uh, while researching this book that I have continued to do and I'm still in love with. And do we have any evidence that that works? So in terms of like helping exercise recovery, etc., it there are some small studies that suggest some benefits. Um, in terms of something that's like a foolproof, absolute, certain, like, aha, this is the the magic bullet. We don't have that. But what we do have is a pretty good um, understanding now that an important part of recovery is just relaxation. It's letting the body unwind. There's a huge psychological component in recovery that I think is really underappreciated. So we, we really think of a lot of this stuff in terms of physiology and like what's happening with your blood, you know, what sorts of things are happening in a muscle. But so much of this is your body's sort of overall stress and a huge component of successful recovery really is stress reduction. And by stress, I mean not just physical stresses, but also emotional and psychological ones as well. Your body um, will process psychological stress in much of the same way that it does physical stress. And so anything that you can do to really relax is going to be helpful. And part of that is you know, the relaxation, but sleep is important as well, right? It's something we're very quick to dismiss, but it is important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, (laughs) when people ask me, okay, so what do we know for sure works for recovery? It's sleep and sleep and sleep. Sleep is like the top 50 things that work. Like the, the, probably the second most effective thing is like 
50 times less effective. I'm making up these numbers. But sleep is just, it, there's just nothing else that comes close. It really is your body's way of repairing itself, of recovering, of um, making repairs to all the little things that you damage to your muscles, um, your heart resting up. All of these things happen during sleep. And what I found really funny is that there are people out there trying to improve your sleep experience. And I'm not just talking about uh, podcast ads from mattress companies. I'm talking about recovery pajamas, which I've never heard of. I know. Yeah, Tom Brady is uh, advertising some infrared pajamas. They ha- they have a special ceramic sewn into the fabric that is supposed to somehow release infrared radiation, which if you remember your physics class is just another kind of heat. Um, so, you know, really they're cozy pajamas and I tried them out. They're fairly comfortable. Um, But I think really the trick here, uh, Tom Brady is actually very well known for going to bed early and really prioritizing sleep. And it's the sleep that's the magic bullet, not the pajamas. It's too bad. Are they cute, though? Uh, Not really. (laughs) Man, it's got to be worth it somehow. And you also use the book to poke holes in some things that Honestly, I thought we all knew worked. And an example of that is icing, not not cryotherapy, but just slap an ice pack on it. What is wrong with putting ice on an injury or taking an ice back bath? You mentioned yourself, this is a very old treatment. We, I mean, relatively speaking, we all know, you know, slap an ice pack on it. Why shouldn't right. we do that? <laughs> Right. And I guess I would just start by turning it around and asking you, Bethany, like, why do you, why would you think that ice would be good? Or what, what do you think the benefits might be? Well, it numbs the pain. That's the main <laughs> one for me. It's numbing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it is. And that that's the one thing that it really, truly is effective at. You know, it does. It, it, well, first, it hurts like hell, right? If you get into a really really cold ice bath, at least in my experience, it's very painful. But then after a period of time, that pain subsides, and then you get this numbness. And it can that could be very pleasant for a while, too. Um, But the the reason that is often pointed to is the idea that, well, it's reducing inflammation. And so you're reducing blood flow to the site, and that's reducing inflammation. But if you think about that, that doesn't make a lot of, of logical sense. Because really, what you're doing is you can think of it as sort of like opening and closing your blood vessels. And so Icing may constrict them a little bit, so you're getting less blood flow and you're getting less um, inflammatory molecules getting to the site. But as soon as you get out of the ice bath and as soon as you heat up again to normal temperatures, that blood flow will increase. So all you've done is sort of delayed some of this stuff. And it turns out that inflammation is actually a really important part of the recovery process. And part of the recovery process that makes it important for athletes is that this is when you actually make your improvements in your sport. So it's where you get stronger, faster, and all of those things. Um, You create this micro damage in your muscles that then gets repaired so that it's stronger for the next time. And these sorts of repairs are really about inflammation and inflammatory molecules coming in and making those repairs. So you don't actually want to stop inflammation. That could be contrary to making those gains that you're looking for. That was actually one of the most mind-blowing sections right? Of this book to me, you know, as, as an athlete, if I can call myself that, I mean, I always assumed that, you know, people take anti-inflammatories. You want to reduce inflammation. And then I go back and thought about it as a physiologist. Inflammation is important. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that that's... 
that's repair. That is all the good stuff that you want. That's where, I mean, inflammation is almost sort of a proxy for adaptation when you're training. And so that's the last thing you want to do is stop that inflammation process from happening because that's where you're going to make your gains. So you have to swell to get swole, basically. Yeah, that's right. I like that. I love that. I'm keeping that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're also one of the things about recovery that we've been kind of getting at is that recovery is about self improvement. It's about right. stamina. It's about improving performance, whatever that improved performance means, whether it's lifting more or running faster. I was actually wondering, does any sports body regulate recovery, like what athletes can do for recovery? Because they regulate things like, for example, doping and training. Do they regulate recovery? Right. That's a good question. Um, not that I know of. I mean, they do in the sense that you're not allowed. There, there are a lot of doping techniques that are probably very good for recovery and aiding recovery. In fact, a lot of the the thoughts around doping is that one of the things it does is allow people to handle more training and to recover faster. So there's probably doping methods that you can use that would improve your recovery, but those are illegal if you're competing, you know, in a sanctioned sport. Um, but uh, doping aside, there, there really isn't any um, regulation on this. Although I will say one thing that's kind of interesting is that in the NBA, um, there are schedule is really, really crowded. And so you have players that are doing many, many games in a row without a lot of rest. So there's been a lot of talk about this, this being a problem. And so, you know, some coaches have have been sitting out players or resting them and the fans don't necessarily like that. If you bought your ticket and are going to a game, you want to see the stars and you don't want the stars sitting out. And so there has been discussion about some of this and about um, creating schedules that might be more you know, conducive to better recovery. I don't know that there's been a lot of movement done on this yet, but it's definitely something that people are thinking about at elite levels. Well, I was particularly interested in that because um, in your chapter on supplements, because of course, mm -hmm. if you're going to have a book on sports, you got to have a chapter on supplements. <laughs> right. You mentioned that some athletes have actually gotten accused of doping because of their supplements and they had no idea what was going on. Can you talk about what happened? Oh, sure. So, I mean, the reason there's a whole chapter, I, I could have written a whole book about supplements. There's so much to say there. Um, but the problem is that our supplement industry is, is pretty much unregulated right now. Um, there's not a lot of uh, confirmation about what's in the bottle. Um, it can be hard to know what you're really getting. And one problem that has arisen is that sometimes some of these supplements may be tainted with other other products. Um, and I don't think that this is usually intentional. Sometimes it is. It, it's, it's really hard to know intentions here. Um, but what has happened is that people are taking supplements and then they're getting caught um, on a drug test showing small amounts of uh, hormones testing positive on drug tests for steroids, which were either manufactured in the same facility or, I mean, who knows how they actually get there. There are a lot of different theories. Um, but I actually interviewed a couple of athletes for the book who were taking electrolyte tablets and ended up testing positive for a banned drug. And it, they found out that it, it was, in fact, in these these pills that they had been taking, the supplements, um, the electrolyte supplements that they were taking contained these things. They had no idea what they were, um, but you just don't know what's in them. And you mentioned that a part of the reason you don't know what's in them is because they're just not 
regulated. We think about, you know, drugs, um, food that's regulated by the FDA, right? I mean, in, in America anyway, it's regulated by the FDA. How are supplements, how, who ensures that they are fit for human consumption? Um, well, so this falls under the FDA to sort of, I don't even want to say regulate because they're not really regulating. So basically what happens is if you have a supplement that appears to be dangerous, it's really up to the FDA has to sort of find proof that it's harmful before they can take it off the shelf or, or do anything about it. So the burden is not on the manufacturer to show that it's safe or to show that it's really containing the things that it has, but it's really flipped so that it takes an incredible amount of work on the FDA's part to say, oh, we found this thing that's dangerous and we're going to take it off the market or we're going to, you know, make sure that it's not contained in those pills anymore. And there have been all sorts of cases, um, uh, calcium supplements that contain heavy metals, um, like I said, uh, supplements that contain steroids and different hormones and things like this. So it, it's really hard to know what you're getting. And so many of, of the different ingredients are sourced from the same places. So it's not just a matter of like finding a brand that is trustworthy because it's really hard to know what trustworthy means in this, in this case. And it's hard to know where things are actually coming from. And that's part of the problem because supplements are extremely popular. A lot of people yeah. take them and, and they take them even if they're not athletes, people just kind of take them. Why do so many people take them? Do do we need all of these? No, we really don't. And in fact, it's interesting. So the US Anti-Doping Agency has really been... Um, They've been working really hard on an educational campaign for years now to try and educate athletes to deter them from taking these things. The problem is that the supplement companies are, in many cases, major sponsors in many of these sports. So it's hard to tell an athlete not to take their sponsor's product, right? But I think the bigger issue here is that, and this goes throughout all of society, not just with athletes, but we have this idea that, oh, you may be missing out on something, or maybe you're you're eating pretty well, but you could be eating a little bit better. And so this is a way to sort of make sure it's insurance for a bad diet or, or less than ideal diet, or that there's some sort of nutrient that if you just got a little bit more of that would make your life perfect. <laughs> yeah. And this is actually part of the rise of kind of a, a field of sports nutrition, which is mm -hmm. something that seems, you know, very natural to us now. But, you know, come to think of it, 20 years ago, that didn't really exist. What is this field of sports nutrition? What is it supposed to do? And where did it come from? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think the idea stem, it, it really stems from this idea that when you're exercising, or if you're an athlete, your body has extraordinary nutritional needs, which when you think about it, it just is sort of obviously backwards, right? Like our bodies evolved for movement. Um, the thing that is extraordinary is our current modern sedentary lifestyles. You know, our, our bodies really are made to exercise. And so exercising is not, um, you know, an extraordinary demand on our body. But there's been this entire sort of movement of sports nutrition that arose very much from the supplement industry and this idea that taking supplements or, or focusing on a particular dietary component could aid performance. And I think as I look at sort of the overall messages that I came to um, after reporting on the book, I think one of them was that we have this idea that there's an absolute 
optimal state of being that we can get our bodies to that will allow us to have perfect performance or optimal performance. And so many of these products and so many of these things really trade on that idea that like, well, you you may be eating pretty well now, but if you just got it a little bit better, you could you could be that much better in your performance and how you're feeling. And it turns out that our bodies are actually very, very highly adaptable. And so although it is absolutely true that what we eat is important and good nutrition is an important thing, particularly for athletes, um, the idea that there's some absolute perfect way of eating or a perfect food or nutritional product that's going to make a difference just really isn't supported by the evidence. Um, but this idea of sports nutrition really arose from uh, companies and, and researchers who were studying supplements that were trying to make the case for these products. And it was very interesting because people think they need supplements, but they don't know quite what supplements they need. And so now this field right. of sports nutrition has arisen. And now you can get blood testing to determine exactly what supplements you need and get your customized supplement nutrition plan. Is that, I mean, is this? useful? I imagine for some people who are actually medically deficient, it can be useful, but I, I would hope that's done under the supervision of a doctor. I mean, it can right. be useful for someone? Um, so very, very few people are actually nutritionally deficient, assuming that they're eating, you know, a normal diet and, you know, are, do not have a severe eating disorder, or restricting their food or calories in a way to where they just aren't getting enough energy. Um, Iron deficiency is one deficiency that is somewhat common among athletes, particularly women of menstrual age. So I think that that is one blood test that could be worth getting for some people. Um, that's something that I struggled with when I was an athlete. Um, but aside from that, it's very unlikely that there's going to be something in your diet that um, you're deficient in. And if you just ate more of your performance will get better. Um, you know, these tests really again, go back to this idea I talked about earlier, these tests really trade on this idea that you're missing out on something and there's some new optimization that you could do that would make everything better. And there just isn't a lot of evidence for it. And it was interesting because, you know, you think, oh, well, yeah, there's this FOMO and, you know, maybe you can just, I don't know, take some supplements and, you know, do some foam rolling and, you know, do some cryo or whatever. Um, and it can't do harm. It may not do good, but it can't do harm. But you actually argue that there may be something not so great about blood testing healthy people to give them supplement regimens. <laughs> Right. Well, first of all, I think it's worth noting that a lot of these companies that are doing the tests also sell the supplements. And so, you know, it's easy to see how, you know, this is a pretty nice way of, you know, money making scheme of, of selling people supplements that are, you know, supposedly personalized to them. <laughs> but I actually took one of these companies up on their test and I, I took a test and it, I turned up some, some issues that said, were potentially problematic and, you know, it's scary. But then I went and talked to some experts. I talked to my own personal doctor as well. And it turns out that these um, findings that I had that were a little bit off were probably actually pretty normal and not something to be afraid of or worried about. But what happens here is you get into the cycle of now, well, now I'm concerned about this, so I need to go back and test again. And in fact, that's what the company said, you know, all right, this 
this looks a little off, but give it a little time and come back for more testing. Well, you know, it's in their interest for me to come back for more testing. But in the end, it doesn't really help me because all it's done is is given me some anxiety about, about something that really isn't anything I need to be worried about. Well, we've talked a little bit about the science of recovery. Now we're going to talk about what recovery has to do with science when we get back. We'll be right back. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. We're back. I'm Bethany Brookshire, and I'm here with Christy Ashwanden talking about her new book, Good to Go, and how science and athletic recovery intersect. Now, Christy, you did a lot of digging through the scientific literature for this book, hunting up what scientific studies have been done on various recovery methods. What did you end up thinking about the volume of research? Is there a lot of research out there on athletic recovery? Uh, there's a lot less than I think I may have imagined going into it. Um, and particularly when you look at some of these products and they seem to be very scientific or there are all these scientific claims that are made. But when I dug into the science, what I found was that a lot of it was pretty thin. Are there any particular areas that you feel are kind of well studied in comparison to others? Um, that's a good question. Uh, don't think I, I can't think of a particular area here that I would want to highlight as being like more rigorous or or better um, characterized than another. Um, I think that throughout most of this field, um, what we have is a lot of small studies that are underpowered, and um, the problem here is that you have well-meaning researchers who are using small studies to look for small effects. And this is sort of like violating the laws of physics or something, right? Like it's just, it's almost impossible to study small effects with small samples. It's just, it's just not going to yield reliable results. I kind of want to dig a little further into that. You mentioned that these studies I don't really want to say low quality, but they're kind of low quality um, because they have low numbers. Why is it a problem to study small numbers of people? And when we talk about studies like these, what kind of numbers are small? Like what, you know, what constitutes a small versus a large study? Right. So in this field, it's very typical to have sample sizes where each group has maybe 10 or 12 people. Certainly fewer than 20 is very common. So in, in medicine, when they're looking for things, usually something like 100, sample sizes of 100 is considered, you know, not, you have to be over 100 to be considered not small. And this is just a really rough, rough gauge. It's very dependent on what you're studying and whatnot. But it's not like, okay, they're studying groups of 10. And if they only had 15, then it would be considered large. These are, are really pretty underpowered. 
And what are the problems that arise when you end up with a small study? If you're studying, say, 10 cyclists who take protein powder versus 10 cyclists who don't. Right. So one of the issues is that you can have a lot of natural variability in the things that you're studying. So it's really hard to sort of tease out noise from signal here. So, you know, are those differences between the groups because of the intervention or are they just because, you know, there's going to be a difference? Like, think of it this way. If you have two groups and you have them do something, they're probably going to be different in some way. And is that just because randomly, um, you know, that they're running finish times were different or is it because of something that you were doing in the study? And so there's that. It's hard to know that the sample that you have is representative of the population that you're studying. Um, and so this is an issue actually that makes it really difficult to study this stuff because if you are trying to study, let's say, elite athletes, well, there are only so many elite athletes to study, right? So you already have a small population. Now, on the one hand, if you have a very small population, it may be possible to study all of them. And obviously, you're not going to do this here. Um, but it's really hard to conduct a study that's going to be representative of that population. And there's also an issue when studying recovery specifically. As you mentioned at the beginning, you mentioned that, you know, what what is recovery? It's a state of readiness. Right. But what does that mean? How do scientists try to measure recovery when they do these studies? Yeah, and it's really hard because so often what happens is there are things that are sort of easy to study and easy to measure, but those may not be the things that matter most. So really, one of the things that I concluded after doing all of this research is that probably the best measure we have of recovery is simply how you feel. Like, do you feel recovered? Do you feel ready to go out and do it again? And that's something that's very hard to quantify with a number or measure with a blood test, right? But that if that's the thing that really matters, and you're doing a study that is measuring some blood measure that may or may not correlate with that, then it's really easy to be led astray. And, and that's what happens in a lot of cases. And this actually leads me to something when you talk about, you know, all of the research you did for the book, you're not just talking about reading other people's studies, you actually did your own scientific study. <laughs> A scientific study of yeah. deep importance to all so of us <laughs> because you studied beer. Can you talk yes. about your study that you designed for beer? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is part of how I, I got you know going down this field of inquiry to begin with. Um, so our study, and I did this with some researchers at Colorado Mesa University, my local, local university here. Um, what we did is we wanted to, the question that we were trying to study basically is this scenario where you finish a race and you go to the beer tent and have a beer or, you know, lots of times uh, my running buddies and I will go for a hard trail run or something and we'll have a beer afterwards. And so the question is, you know, it's really, the beer is really refreshing. It's a nice, enjoyable thing to do, but are we wrecking our recovery? And that's what I wanted to find out. But it turned out that it was it was a really hard study to design because again it goes back to this question of okay well what do we mean by recovery and what what might be the consequences of the alcohol or the beer that we're wondering about and so I went and looked at the literature and it turned out that there were a few studies that suggested that drinking could um, 
uh, be harmful for the way that your muscles recover from a hard bout of exercise, and it could somehow interfere with glycogen replenishment, and that's sort of the fuel that your muscles use. Um, but the problem is that these studies were done mostly in rugby players, if I'm recalling correctly, but the, the amounts of alcohol that they were drinking were, I mean, it was like six or seven beers in an hour. I mean, something that like most reasonable people aren't going to do. I mean, we're, we're talking about one beer after a run, not going out and getting drunk, right, which is a completely different thing. And so we set up the study, and what we decided to look at is we put people on a treadmill and had them do what's called a run to exhaustion and this is a really standard test that's used all throughout exercise science for a lot of different studies. Um, but basically, you're on the treadmill and you're put at a certain pace, and so you can't go any longer. And so what I found out is that even though on paper it seemed like a really good measure of recovery, because you know presumably if you're less recovered, you're going to get tired faster and you won't be able to last as long, that really what happened is you're in this lab, you're doing this kind of dumb study that you may or may not care that much about and like at some point you're just kind of bored and it's uncomfortable and how long are you going to keep going and how hard are you going to push yourself so it felt like a very psychological test and you know in some ways that was okay because like as I mentioned earlier there is a really large psychological component to recovery and if you're not recovered you know the exercise may feel less pleasant and so you know that may be an okay way of measuring it. But talking to other people in the study, we all sort of felt like it wasn't an ideal way. And um, you know, another way that we looked at, at recovery in the study was that we asked people just how, how hard it felt. And so those were some of the measures that, that we used in the study. And it showed me that one of the first challenges that you have when you're trying to study one of these things is just deciding how you're going to study and how you're going to measure the thing that you're studying and the decisions that you make there have such a profound impact on what you find. And so you did this run to exhaustion and then mm -hmm. you had people drink beer, but you actually ran into a problem with that too, the actual drinking right. of the beer. Right, right. So the design was, so we came into the lab. So I was one of the test subjects too. And so we came into the lab and did a hard run. And then afterwards, we drank a beer and ate a pasta dinner. And then the next morning, we came in and did the run to exhaustion. So that was sort of the protocol. We did that twice. So and everyone was randomized. So in one of the runs, you got the real beer. And in the other one, you got the placebo beer, which was a non-alcoholic beer. But it turned out, you know, so this was supposed to be blinded, right? So the beers looked in the cup exactly the same but pretty much everyone could tell which one was the real beer so right away we ran into this problem and that it really isn't blind and so then you have a situation of well here you're doing a test the run to exhaustion which is already you know feels a little bit like a test of intention and like okay how hard are you willing to go or how long are you willing to put up with this sort of annoying test. And so if you know that you just had the real beer and you want beer to be good, you may be a little bit incentivized to keep going. Or if you think, well, I just, I know that that was really the beer. So that's licensed to quit earlier. You know, you get those sorts of things involved and it makes it really hard to interpret the results. And I also wanted to ask, you know, what kind of things could beer do for recovery? You mentioned the study in the rugby players saying it could affect glycogen stores. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are people who make beer, recovery beers, like actual beers that you're supposed to drink after you exercise that are your recovery beer. Is this just because we want an excuse to drink beer? Is there any reason to think that <laughs> beer might be okay? 
Right. So, you know, beer is mostly water, which water is good. It's hydrating. It's, you know, it's a very hydrating beverage, right? It's how, it's how you replenish fluids. Uh, it's got some carbohydrates and carbohydrates are something good to consume after exercise. And it's got some minerals, which again can be useful and good. So, yeah, I think there, there is a case. And that was part of the idea here is there is a case that, hey, this is a pretty ideal recovery fuel. So the question then is, okay, but is it, you know, can you drink a beer with alcohol or is the alcohol going to counteract all these other good things in the beer? And so you did this study. How many people, you said you, you know, small sample sizes are bad. How many people did you have? Right. We had 10. Again, this is pretty standard, but (laughs) it was too small. I just, so what we found, so we, we took several measures, and the only thing that we found a, a difference that was statistically significant and that seemed to be, you know, large enough that there could be something there was on the run to exhaustion times. And the thing that was exciting is that we found that women seemed to perform much better. It seemed as though the beer really aided recovery in women. We Woo-hoo! were able to, you know, perform better on that run to exhaustion the morning after we'd had the beer. So, you know, that sounded like a great result. And on the other hand, the men performed worse. So like, you know, if you're like me and you're married to a man who could potentially be your designated driver, it sounds like great news, right? But the problem was that as a participant in the study and someone who had been involved in it from the get-go, I just, I found it really hard to believe the result because looking at individual uh, numbers, those were pretty variable too. And it just didn't feel convincing to me. And no study is perfect. You know, this study isn't perfect. Um, though I also agree, I really like the results. But <laughs> these days, every new project, every new recovery product seems to come with the endorsed by science tag on it. And you're saying, you know, a lot of these studies aren't necessarily the greatest studies. Do you have, if if somebody is looking at a new recovery product, do you Mm -hmm. have any tips that people can keep in mind? What should they look for if they're looking at a recovery product? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is to just ask, what is it promising to do? And is this a plausible sort of thing? So, you know, one of the things that I found was most important, actually, for recovery was just the sense of, you know, does it help you relax? Does it help you rest? Does it give you a sense of calm? Does it you know, somehow make you feel good? If it does that, it's probably worth doing. Um if it doesn't, and if it's painful, so for instance, for me, after looking into this stuff, I used to think that ice baths were pretty good. I always hated them, but I thought, well, it's for my own good. I pretty much have stopped doing that now. I mean, the only situation in which um, I think ice baths are useful is they they do give a nice numbing feeling. So if you you know have some sort of pain that you're trying to tame, it can be helpful for that. But in terms of recovery, it, it doesn't seem to be helpful. So I think that it does sort of give you license to stop doing the stuff that you didn't want to do that you were just sort of doing because you thought it was good for you. But you know, a lot of these scientific studies will have real, the, 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 the new products will have scientific studies, you know, backing them up right. saying, oh, you know, we have this study and, you know, X number of athletes showed that, you know, this new drink did this great thing. Do you have tips for people to look at? Like, are there red flags they should look for? What should they, you know, focus on to see whether or not they're about to be fooled into spending a lot of money? 
Right. Yeah. So I think one thing is to just ask, okay, what, where was the study done? How many people were in it? What were the methods? Was it published somewhere? So many of these products that I saw would have these claims on them, like a study show, but then I was unable to find any mention or any uh, evidence of this study in the literature. So it may be that the company ran a, a little study, but they aren't published and the data aren't there for you to look at. So that's a red flag. If the, you know, these results are not shared, they're not open for you to see if you can't tell how the study was done. Um, another red flag I would say is just there are a lot of particular claims that are just bogus that you can just look at and say, okay, that's not helpful. And one of these is this very, very common claim that it flushes lactic acid. And this is something, you know, back when I was a high school runner, my coach would say, oh, we have to do this and that to flush the lactic acid. And everything was about lactic acid, which was bad, and you needed to get it out of your muscles. Well, it turns out that lactic acid is not what makes you sore, contrary to these things that I had been told when I was younger. And it's also something that your muscles clear very quickly on their own. So chances are, by the time you've even gotten a chance to do any of these things, that lactic acid that you built up in your muscles is already gone and your body has already cleared it. So that that's one sort of red flag that I would avoid. And also, I would say, look stuff up. How many people yeah. looked at Tom Brady's infrared pajamas and went, ooh, infrared pajamas? <laughs> Right. And didn't realize that those are those are warm. Those are warm yeah. pajamas. <laughs> and it's funny because you know it, this this is such a good example because there's nothing wrong with the pajamas. I found them comfortable. I mean, they really aren't that much different than most other of this type of sportswear. Um, you know, they were sort of tights and a and a comfortable uh, synthetic top. Um, and so, if it's comfortable, if it's making you feel nice while you're sleeping, that's fine, but it's sort of this desire to add some kind of scientific veneer of legitimacy to it. Like these aren't just, it's not just pajamas, but these are like space age pajamas that are going to optimize your sleep when really like the thing that optimizes your sleep is having the room dark, uh, going to bed at a reasonable hour, making sure you're in bed sleeping long enough, right? Yeah. And you did all this research on recovery. You tried everything. You tried the space pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> you tried the cryotherapy. You tried the compression leggings. What do you do for recovery now? And did you change anything? You mentioned that you no longer take ice baths. Did you change anything else? Yeah, I no longer take ice baths. Um, this is something that I changed before I had started the book because I had done some research on it before, but I stopped stretching many years ago because I found that, um, well, the research shows that it's not helpful for recovery. It's not helpful for injury prevention for the most part. Um, and for me, I just found that it like took up a lot of time and didn't make myself, didn't make me feel better. So that's one thing that I stopped doing. I stopped the ice baths. I'll tell you a couple of things that I have continued doing or started doing. So I've started doing the sensory deprivation, which now the new term that makes it sound more appealing, actually, I have to say, is floating. So I love the float tank. So I have one um, near my house that I go to occasionally. I really enjoy that. I, I think of it as forced meditation meditation for people like me who are monkey minds. Um, and then the other thing that I really, well, there's two other things that I really enjoy. One is massage. And this is another thing that um, there aren't a lot of very 
scientifically proven uh, benefits for massage, but the thing is it feels really good. And if nothing else, it means that you are lying still for like a half an hour or an hour just relaxing. And like that is almost the definition of recovery, right? So if you could just spend some time not moving around, relaxing, that in itself is recovery. So massage is one that I really like. Uh, Another nice thing about massage is it helps, it kind of aids in this body awareness that is very important for athletes. So it's a way of sort of checking in on your body and figuring out how you feel and all of your different muscles and things like that. And I think that that's really one reason that athletes love it so much. And then the final thing that I absolutely love is um, hot baths and hot springs. I really, really love that. And again, it just goes back to you're you're just taking some time to relax and to feel good. And in all of your research, what do you think is the most important part of exercise recovery? What what should people do then? Sleep. (laughs) prioritize your sleep reduce the stress in your life those are really the two most important things that you can do and you know i realize that that's all the stuff your grandmother told you but grandma was right well christy thank you so much for talking with us this book was fascinating and i learned just as much about science as i did about sports (laughs) oh i'm delighted to hear that and it's so nice to be here thank you for the invitation You can find out more about Christy Ashwanden and her new book, Good to Go, What the Athlete in All of Us Can Learn from the Science of Recovery at scienceforthepeople.ca. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, Join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. But wait, we're not done. In fact, we've got some things to talk about, and that's why Rochelle is here to join me. Hi, Rochelle. Hello, Bethany. Now, I know I was all into celebrating our 500th episode, but it was really only a 500th-ish episode. There are rebroadcasts and renumberings, and really, 500 is just a number. I mean, it's a big number. But in fact, we've got an even bigger anniversary coming up, right? That is correct. On March 20th, 2019, Science for the People will celebrate its 10-year anniversary. Holy smokes. Woo! (laughs) It's amazing. Uh, So Science for the People as a name of the show, I think has only existed since 2013. But before that, that was just a a rebrand of a show that was already in existence since uh, 2009, uh, which was previously called Skeptically Speaking. Um, And that show started on March 20th. 2009. And it started at CJSR in Edmonton as primarily a radio show uh, that aired on that campus radio station. But they also pushed it out as a podcast because podcasts were new and exciting. And why the heck not? It was cool. It was interesting. It was a fun way to expand the scope of the show and provide it for a wider range of people. And that's kind of how we came to be a podcast is a little bit accidental. 
but I love that, that we did it. I mean, I wasn't there, but pioneers, <laughs> brave exactly. pioneers in the podcasting world. But as the world has changed, so have we. Uh, now, most of our listeners actually access us through the internet as a podcast, uh, far more than ever access us as a radio show. Isn't that right? That is correct. As best as we can tell, uh, the vast majority of our listeners find us online via our podcast feed. Uh, we still provide a feed to radio, um, but it's unclear how many people listen to us there, but it doesn't seem to be that many when we solicit feedback and when we uh, have done surveys in the past. So we think it's time to make a few changes, you know, uh, but that don't, don't take that to mean that this podcast is ending. The podcast is not ending. Far from it. We love what we do, and we don't plan on stopping anytime soon. No, that is definitely true. We are, uh, as always, a dedicated bunch of volunteer podcasters who love the topic and love uh, the show that we do. But we do want to change with the times. Um, now, knowing how large our online audience is, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for us to continue creating a weekly radio-style show, um, because it has some challenges. Yes. For example, some weeks it's really easy to fill an hour with fascinating guests. Other weeks, I mean, some guests are fast talkers, all right? They're fast talkers. Exactly. Super interesting content, but sometimes we just don't fill the hour. And other times we have enough great content to fill an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes. And instead of having to cut out some really great stuff, we'd like to be able to give that to you. I actually remember one epic interview that Desiree did that I think ended up a record two hours and 30 minutes straight. It was fantastic. Were you the, were you the person on the other side of that interview? I was not, um, but I remember who it was, and it was a, an amazing interview. <laughs> it was delightful. We ended up airing it over two episodes, and there was still bonus content. Oh, it was just sometimes the guests we get are so good and the conversations are so interesting that it's really, really hard and kind of heartbreaking to have to cut things. Yes. So we'd like a little more flexibility. Podcasting has killed the radio stars. So what are we going to do? So by March 20th, we will be an online only show. We're going to no longer produce uh, exactly 60 minute length episodes for radio stations. That doesn't mean you'll necessarily stop hearing episodes from us on radio stations, but you'll likely stop hearing the new episodes as a lot of our existing radio stations transition away from, uh, from having us as a show because we're no longer going to stick to that rigorous 60 minute exactly time frame. Um, and that will cause some problems for radio. So we're already in the process of letting them know and communicating with them. We're going to provide them with uh, a list of our back catalog so that they can transfer over and have some additional time to move into new content in those slots. But if you want to get new episodes, if you want to guarantee you're getting all the new episodes of Science for the People when they come out, you will need to find us online uh, at scienceforthepeople.ca or using the podcast application of your choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, whether that's Overcast, Pocket Casts, all the other really great podcast apps out there. Uh, search for us, Science for the People, and it'll pop up as a feed that you can subscribe to. And there is another important point. We have been a radio show. Radio, as you may have heard if you've ever listened to National Public Radio or NPR, you may have heard that radio doesn't make any money. <laughs> We don't make a lot of money either, and that is why we have a Patreon. Okay, 
Is it Patreon or is it Patreon? Because I think you and I pronounce it differently. I always say Patreon, but I have never heard the official pronunciation guide. If you know for a fact, let us know. I, Patreon, Patreon, tomato, tomato. We have wonderful listeners who kick us a few bucks every month, and it means the world to us. And to show our gratitude to our wonderful, kind supporters, we do offer bonus content. Um, but we also offer something else, our new yearly scientist birthday card. In 2018, we worked with an artist and our own research team. And by research team, you mean me. Yes, an amazing research team, which was <laughs> you. But anyway, we worked with an artist and we created a beautiful birthday card honoring Lloyd Quartermain, a brilliant African-American chemist who contributed to the Manhattan Project, as well as using his chemistry skills to make parts that can still be found today in your smartphone. And this year, we've got another wonderful scientist's birthday to celebrate. We just picked it and we're so excited. So if you want to find out about a scientist who we promise you have never heard of and who you really should have heard of, support us. Head to our website, scienceforthepeople.ca, click on Celebrate a Scientist Birthday. That will take you to the Patreon page. Patreon page. This is going to bug me for the rest of the day. Patreon. What? Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Heck, go click on the link. And once you've done that, tell your friends. These days, everyone loves getting a little piece of mail, and a scientist birthday card is the best mail that I can think of. And you can follow us on Twitter on Facebook. You can rate us on iTunes and you can share the love of science and you can teach us how to pronounce the word (laughs) P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Definitely give us a rating on iTunes. If you find the show interesting, if you would recommend us to a friend, the best way to do that, even if you've already recommended us to all the friends you already know, is to jump on iTunes and give us a quick rating. It uh, makes more people notice the show. Um, It allows people to find the show. They talk about the show and share it with their friends. So please do do that. I know all the podcasts ask you to do that, but there's a reason all the podcasts ask you to do that. It's because it really is uh, a great way to find new podcasts, one of the only and main ways that people tend to discover new content other than word of mouth. And it's like word of mouth, which with a much broader audience. Yes. And keep your eyes on that Patreon, Patreon, this is going to kill me page. (laughs) We've got new ideas coming up for our supporters, ideas where we might even get to swear. We might get to swear. Who ever heard of such a thing? So check it out. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Bye. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 